0: 2 Kings chapter 6. If you are visiting with us today, we have been working through 2 Kings and we're in a section especially focused on the life of Elisha, prophet Elisha who follows Elijah. And we're at 2 Kings chapter 6. We pick up the story at verse 8. Last week we heard the great story of the healing of Naaman and a couple weeks before that we saw the story of the um, floating axe head. So that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll read from there to verse 23. 2 Kings 6 and at verse 8. Listen, this is God's word. Once. When the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, Thus He used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And When the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of, this, of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, "'My father, shall I strike them down?' "'Shall I strike them down?' He answered, "'You shall not strike them down.' "'Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? "'Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master.' So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. <clears throat> well, last week I began by saying one of the benefits of the, uh, those recent incidents of spy balloons and unidentified flying objects being shot down, one of the benefits of those events were that now more Americans than ever know where Canada is. (laughs) But there's another side effect, a little more sobering perhaps. These events have forced us, at least for a minute or two until the next Uh, distraction or diversion, but have forced us for a minute or two to reckon with the rather uncomfortable and even unsettling truth that someone, somewhere, is watching us. In fact, we know if we really think about it, there are very few places we can go where we are not on camera, or not able to be tracked by our phones or our GPSs. Someone, somewhere, it seems, is always watching us. And this is unsettling to us because we assume most of the people or the people behind the systems trying to track us are malevolent. They are out to get us. They want to know our secrets, and they want to use them for their advantage and not for our good. But what if I were to remind you that you always, always live and move and have your being before the watchful, all-seeing eye of the God of the universe, And the God who made you, from whom nothing at all is hidden. The one who knows the hairs of your heads, the thoughts in your minds, the desires of your hearts, and the words of your mouths, and the actions of your whole bodies. That one. The one before whom not only your words, not only your actions, but every thought and secret of your heart is known. But what if I also reminded you that you live and move and have your being before this God and because you belong to him, having put your faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, he has promised to be present with you and to protect you. That he uses his knowledge of you for your good. And that even though he knows everything about you, he loves you anyway. And promises to preserve and to protect you anyway. Well, we come today to another episode in the life of Elisha. And unlike the story of Naaman, only Elisha is named in this story. And that is going to be significant, I think, and we'll come to that later. But uh, we do not have any other names. But we're to imagine here that the king of Syria, on several occasions, remember Syria is the country just to the north of Israel, and the king of Syria has been making raids on Israel, has been warring against them, and they have seemed to be successful, which we take to be a sign of God's judgment against Israel, that God is actually advancing the cause of the enemy against His own people. And the king of Syria sits in his war room, surrounded by his advisors and servants, and says, what do we do next? And they make plans for how and when and where to attack Israel. And we already know, again, they've had these successful raids on Israel, one of which had resulted in the capture of that little girl who became a slave to the great general, or to his wife at least, Naaman, the general of the army, and the mighty man of valor. And so I think we're at least invited to speculate a little bit here. You'll wonder if Naaman was in on these meetings, uh, if he's involved in these discussions about um, the king's having with his leaders about when and where and how uh, to go next. But the problem for the king of Syria is no sooner has he established a plan. He has his next little foray into Israel, all mapped out. And Elisha, the man of God, goes to the king of Israel and warns him. And the king of Israel uh, is a trust and verify kind of guy. He sends his own servants to the very spot Elisha's told him about. And those always check out. The message coming back to the king Uh, is yes, the Syrians are gathering there, so the king of Israel avoids that spot, and it turns out this has happened on several occasions. And so very simply, the king of Syria makes plans to raid Elisha, as if he were sitting in that room himself, advises the king of Israel of the plans. The king of Israel protects himself, and this happens more than once or twice, several times. Well, at some point after the third time, the king of Syria starts to catch on. And he begins to suspect he has either a traitor of his own number or perhaps a spy from Israel is somehow figuring out what's going on. And he is going through all these efforts to um, make these plans, not only to make the plans, but actually to go to these places. And every time his plans are frustrated. And this causes the king some considerable distress. And so he stands up and says, someone in this room, someone in this room is tipping off the enemy. Who here is actually for the king of Israel? The great part of this story, if we've been uh, tracking along, is there's a servant who knows more than his master. You'll wonder how long he knew this. But he says, no, oh, king, we're all with you, but there's this prophet. I know a guy. There's a prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha for whom no secret is safe. Even, this is surely hyperbolic, but even your pillow talk, he relates to the king of Israel. Well, that's frightening. Well, the king of Syria seems to assume, and and, and this makes a lot of sense, but he seems to assume at this point the prophet in Israel must enjoy the favor and the protection of the king of Israel. After all, he's the inside guy giving good intel to the king of Israel, saving them from the Syrians, and so he must be tight with the king. It's also possible here that he... The, 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 the legend of Elisha has grown so much to so come in mythic proportions nearly that the king of Syria says, I want to go get him, but in order to get him, I need to muster a large army with lots of horses, lots of chariots. And that's what he does. He sends this great army with horses and chariots to Dothan to capture Elisha. Dothan is only about 10 or 12 miles north of. Samaria, and that is on the way from Syria to Samaria. The army surrounds the city in the middle of the night. I wonder if the king of Syria wondered if Elisha, who knew all his other plans, knew this one. We don't get that except for Elisha seems utterly unfazed in the morning. So the next morning, early in the morning, his servant steps out of the house to walk the dog or go to the restroom or wherever, but he looks out and sees a city surrounded by a great army. Chariots, horses, frightening. And the army seems especially concentrated or focused on Elisha's house. The text tells us they're surrounding and Elisha's at the center of this story. Servant rushes to his master. Oh no, what will we do? And Elisha gives that famous line we see so many times in scripture, fear not. Elisha is unfazed by what's happening because he apparently is aware of the presence and the power and the protection of the Lord. Because he says this, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But if you're reading through the story at this point, you don't know, we don't know who is with Elisha. At this point, it's just Elisha and his servant. You see, Elisha does not look out at the Syrian army surrounding him. When he looks out at them, he does not pray, Lord, send an even larger or at least a correspondingly great army to match them or perhaps to overpower them. He does not pray, Lord, send more chariots, send a whole army of our guys. Rather, he prays, Lord, open his eyes. Open my servant's eyes so that he may see what I see. And the Lord answers that prayer. He opens the eyes of the servant. And the servant sees. And notice as he sees, we see what Elisha already saw and knew to be there. The servant along with him, uh, we get to see what even the Syrian army could not apparently see. Horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. Horses and chariots of fire that remind us of the horses and chariots of fire that swept up Elijah in his elevation, now surrounding Elisha for his preservation. And as the story unfolds, we learn that this heavenly army surrounding Elisha is not actually there to do battle with the Syrian army. But they're to assure Elisha, and now his servant, of the Lord's protective presence. Well, at some point, uh, it seems the servant had come up, uh, woken up a little earlier than everyone else, but at some point the Syrians start to wake up and, and they start to realize that Elisha's there. They're close enough to begin to advance on him. And Elisha prays again. This time he prays for blindness. Blindness for the Syrian army. And again, the Lord hears and answers his prayer. The servants' blind eyes are open. The Syrians' open eyes are blinded. And then Elisha plays a trick. He approaches the army and has a conversation with at least one of them, probably the commander of the army, and he convinces them he is not Elisha. But he knows where Elisha is, and he'll be happy to lead them to him. They're all misdirected. They're heading in the wrong direction, but he is going to lead them to their man. And Elisha leads them, what we assume to be, 10 or 12 miles. Which must have been a sight to see. One blind man holding on to the hand of another, maybe holding on to the tail of the horse in front of him. Whatever this long procession of blinded people being led by Elisha, the man they're out to get. And it's not until they're all standing in the heart of the capital city of Samaria... Elisha prays again, Lord, open their eyes. And of course, the Lord does so. He restores their sight. It's like some kind of a game that children play with a blindfold, taking their younger brothers and sisters to places they wouldn't otherwise go. Well, at some point, the king of Syria, looking out his window, Uh, sees this massive procession, this army of Syrians with their horses and their chariots, being led into the city by a one-man army, Elisha, leading these prisoners of war as if in joyful procession, triumphant procession. And they're standing there, now rubbing their eyes and wondering what in the world has happened How once they were blind, but now they can see, and they're standing in the middle of the capital of Israel. Well, now the king of Israel is interestingly deferential. He addresses Elisha as my father, and he asks Elisha for permission to kill the Syrians, which Elisha does not grant. Instead, Elisha says, feed them. Set down a feast before them and send them back on their way, which the king does. He sends them on their way and the last line of the phrase, Assyrians did not come back again on raids into the land of Israel. Slight little problem if your eye happened to catch the next verse. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. There's actually a very simple way of understanding this and some of the other stories we've been looking at more recently, I hinted at this a few weeks ago, but if you don't remember, it might be because I told you it wouldn't be on the quiz. I have been reminding you that First and Second Kings are one book. They're one book. They're a story of the history of the kings of Israel. They begin, as you might remember, with the very last days of King David. And then uh, the glorious reign of his son Solomon. Both of those kings over the United Kingdom, all 12 tribes. But as the book progresses, the... Tribes are separated, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Judah and Jerusalem in the south, Israel, Samaria to the north. The book ends, that is, the book of Kings 1 and 2 ends with the ten tribes of the north scattered to the wind. And the two tribes in the south sent off into exile. And notice we are in a section a few chapters long where we we have uh, uh, Elisha at the center of the story. It's a book about the kings, but there's this section where the prophet is elevated, even to the point where the kings are not named. And so our story today begins once. That is, this is not a linear historical telling of the lives of the kings these are stories lifted out and i think for a purpose later generations of believers write down to each one of us we need to have our eyes opened and our ears open to see and to hear the message of the prophets of god We are in a section where the names of the kings in the book about the kings aren't even mentioned. And it would have been entirely easy, wouldn't it, for God, by his spirit, to inspire the authors to add a simple line in the days of King so-and-so or in the fourth year of the reign of King so-and-so as the rest of the book does. And I can tell you that every commentary I've consulted during this section tries to speculate on who the kings were. Which king of Syria was the king in this story? Which king of Israel? And I'm not convinced we need to know that. In fact, I'm quite convinced God, by his own design, didn't need, uh, let us know that we didn't need to know this. And here's why. The stories as they are lifted out of that chronological sequencing we might expect to see in history books Amplify the role of the prophet of God. Because later generations and we ourselves need to hear this. We need to know that the gods of the nations, the gods unbelievers trust in, anything but the true and living God, those things that are so appealing as if they can hear us or see us, Or save us are of no value, have no power. The prophet of God, God's representative on earth, hears the whispers of the king of Syria, those things spoken in secret. The prophet of God could see the powerful presence protecting him. He's able to call on God to. Open the eyes of the blind. And he's able also to pray to God. To shut the eyes of those who thought they could see. The Syrians who didn't see or who didn't know. Elisha is leading them because their eyes are blinded. Have them opened to see. They are this close to being destroyed by the king of Israel. And instead are set down at a table in a banquet. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's surprising news to subsequent generations that that was made available to, presented to the Syrians, enemies of God's people. That rather than being put to death, they were set at a table. And from the time of Joshua, uh, in their first entrance into the land, through the entire Old Testament, right up through the exile, the Lord has been telling his people, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. That they were not to be like the other nations, trusting in the size of their army. Or putting their trust in horses or chariots but rather to serve the one living true God who would lead them and fight for them, who would bring to them victories over their enemies and and lead them in triumphal procession to feasts and banquets, celebrating their victories. And a later nation in exile is going to have to reckon with the fact that when the Assyrians came or when the Babylonians came, the Lord did not fight for them. And he didn't fight for them to teach them that their trust in the gods who couldn't see and the gods who couldn't hear and the gods who couldn't save was an empty blind trust. Misplaced. Misdirected. And then we're probably to be reminded in this story of a greater prophet who comes. The greatest prophet of all time, who is at once surrounded by his enemies, who has his closest friends say, Oh no, what shall we do? And he says, put up the sword. And he says, you know, I could call on legions of angels to deliver me in this moment. I wish you could see what I can see. There are legions of angels standing ready to wait for my word to come and deliver me in a mighty way. But that's not the way it's going to go. Instead, I will give myself into the hands of the enemy even to the point of death. We're to know about the greatest prophet of all time who gives himself over to death, who is raised to new life by the power of the same Spirit who rested on Elijah and then on Elisha, and who gives his clear word to us that we might know his perfect will, and who endows us with the same Spirit that we might know that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, And that we might know there is a battle waging all around us, warring even against us, with principalities and powers we cannot see except by their effects. We too are the objects of the interest of the enemy. And we should know that the God who knows all things, from whom nothing is hidden, even your deepest thoughts. That God still surrounds us and protects us and preserves us. And he's also the God who opens our eyes and says to us, you need to know this, my friends. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He opens our eyes that we can see what we otherwise couldn't, but that we're surrounded by the power and the presence and the protection of God and he assures our hearts, greater am I in you than anyone else who's in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, our Savior, our great warrior and victor, the one who could have called upon angels to deliver him but set that aside to enter into death for our sakes for us and for our salvation and now our God and Father we ask that for each one of us in whatever stage or phase of life we are in you would not scare us by your the revelation of your great discerning eye that you see all things but that you would in that reassure us that even though you know us thoroughly you love us that you've sent your son for us that you've raised him from the dead and that you will along with him set us in your presence in a great triumphal eternal feast and how we thank you too that We who once were enemies have become friends. And for the reminder this is to us, that others today who are against you might still be turned toward you. Receive our thanks for this. Hear our prayer. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen. Amen.